major thing, like waiting for the next big season of our life. Um, I mean, waiting two days for an Amazon delivery kills me. Waiting six weeks for a tax return is that much worse. Um, but waiting is difficult, not just because I'm impatient, right? Uh, but because I don't like to sit. I like to do. I, I want to make things happen. I want to get in there. I want to manipulate the situation. I want to I work towards a solution and not just sit back and trust others that things are going to happen, right? In waiting, I can't be active. I have to be passive. And all my angst, all my anxiety, however fidgety I am, it doesn't matter how many times you click refresh watching your Grubhub order come down the road, it's not going to do anything to get it there faster. But through waiting, right, God trains us in this. He puts us in a position where we're not able to act. We have to be passive. We simply have to trust that he is God, that he is in control, that he has a plan, and that, that our power as a creature is incredibly limited. And this is actually a good thing, right? Waiting is kind of a passive grace of God. And that we, we don't often think of it like that. We don't think of waiting as a grace of God. We think of it as a necessary evil. Um, but in our text this morning, Pastor James tells his congregation and thus tells us, um, that, that's not really the right way to think about waiting. Not just waiting for something minor, you know, like somebody to learn how a roundabout works, but how to wait for something very significant, the most significant thing, right? The return of Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and I'll, I'll read it for us. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So this morning, what I want to do is uh, show you four things that should define our waiting as Christians. And wanting us to see these four things so that as we're called to wait, we might be found faithful in our doing as well. So let me back up. I can't see everybody without turning completely. Uh, so the first thing that we want to see from this text is the call to wait with patience. And I'm getting this from verses 7 and 8, right? It's not, it's not difficult to see James' emphasis in these two verses. Be patient. Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient 
Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I mean, patience for you and I, at least for me, is difficult. But, but we have to remember what's going on with these early Christian believers, right? Remember what we talked about last week. They're, they're laborers in fields living paycheck to paycheck. And they're being defrauded by their employers. I mean, look back at verse 4, uh, chapter 5, verse 4. It says, their cries have reached the ears of God in their suffering. It's language of, you know, the slaves in Exodus, early in, in, in the book, the slaves of Egypt crying out to God. These people have suffered so much evil and injustice. In fact, if you, if you look down at verse 6 of this chapter, it's likely these Christians that have been murdered by these wealthy, evil people. So we're being defrauded so you can't buy food for your kids, and you have your friends, your brothers and sisters, your, your co-workers being murdered. And it's not like they're bored waiting for Netflix to buffer, and so they're getting impatient. Like, like they're experiencing grievous evil here. They're suffering. They can't survive because of the evil being done to them. This whole introduction I did about waiting at Kroger and waiting at roundabouts, it's laughable considering what they're going through and the patience that they're being called to. When the church is being murdered, when, when families are starving, when the blood is crying out from the fields, there isn't time for us to wait. We need action now. But to the dismay of, you know, many Marxists, what does James tell us? He doesn't say, okay, rise up against this evil class that's over you. No, he says, be patient then, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Because when the Lord comes, that's when justice rolls down like a river. Wait for him. Trust in him. Be patient until the Lord comes. Because, I mean, what happens when the Lord comes? I mean, first, we have hope of resurrection for those who are dying, those who are being killed, those who are starving. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 says that those who have died in the Lord will be raised. So we have this hope of resurrection. But I think the, the emphasis here, given the threat of judgment that comes right before us, is that, that God will indeed come and judge those who do evil. And therefore, God's people must trust him to provide justice instead of taking justice into their own hands. They must realize that God is faithful and trustworthy. And so the call is to suffer a little while. Be patient. They're actually called to be just like God is, right? God is enduring human evil for a season, being patient not meeting out justice immediately, but he's tarrying Christ's return so that evil men, like us, have a chance to repent. And he says, Christians, if you're, if you're going to be like your Father in heaven, you be patient, you endure evil for a season as well. He gives this illustration in verse 7, right? It's not difficult. You want a picture of patience? Look, look to the farmer. He plants the seed, and he waits. It rains, the early rains in the spring. Actually, this would be the fall. Um, this is Middle Eastern culture, not ours. Um, he waits for the early rains. He can't do anything to make them come quicker. He can't hurry them along. And then he waits for the later rains. 
Again, he can't do anything. He just has to sit and trust the Lord. He waits patiently for God to provide. Look at the farmer for an example of patience. But actually, if we knew our Old Testament the way that these you know, Jewish converts did, we'd see a lot more significance. Because, because James brings up, we wait for the, the later and the early rains, which is a phrase in the Bible that doesn't just describe the weather, though, though it does, obviously. It's a phrase that's always used to describe God's faithfulness. So if you start back in Deuteronomy um, eleven fourteen, 14, um, it says that God's going to care for his people through the early and late rains. It says, If you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. So it's this, this God's going to be faithful to his covenant by providing the rain so that you can have what you need. And as you continue through scripture, we're never like, and you know, Elijah asked about the weather and says, we're getting early and later rains. No, it's always pointing back to God's faithfulness. So when the prophets need to remind God's people, God's going to be faithful to you. You be faithful to him. They bring up these early and later rains. In um, Jeremiah 5.24, Hosea 6.3, Joel 2.23, Zechariah 10.1, they're always mentioned to point to the faithfulness of God in giving his people exactly what they need and exactly when they need it. So when these Jewish readers read the illustration, they'd see the farmer and they'd understand that, but they'd also know how to read between the lines and understand, okay, we're picking up this biblical theme of God's faithfulness. If he's faithful to provide the early and the late rains, surely he'll be faithful to us now giving us everything we need and therefore we can wait patiently. But, I mean, look at the farmer. Patience doesn't mean inactivity. It's, it's, you know, even though a farmer is completely dependent upon the Lord, it's not like he goes out, he plants his seed, and then he takes a nap for a couple months. No, like, farmers don't have a reputation for laziness. They're always busy. They're always active. You plant the seed, then you have to prune and weed and till and fertilize and run off critters, and I don't even know what else you do. So as we're patient for the Lord's return, it's not just, you know, sit back, relax, wait for God. There's work to do in our patience. I mean, look at verse 8. It says, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We have to work hard to stay put, to establish our hearts. Right? We don't want to be like Abraham, who instead of you know trusting in God to provide him his son, took matters into his own hands and had a, had a son by Hagar. We want to establish our hearts. We want to strengthen our hearts. We want to, it's a picture of a sumo wrestler, right? I mean, Joel, you guys, have you ever gone to a sumo contest? No, okay. I'm just curious. Thought they might happen. But, I mean, from what I understand of sumo wrestling, what you do is you take all of your, your weight, all of your energy, all of your strength, and you use it to stand firm and to push the other guy out of the ring. Because if you get pushed out of the ring, then you lose the, the sumo match. And so 
what we're trying to do is we're trying to stay firmly planted. We're trying to be established in this trust of God's character and his care and his providence and his return. We exercise, we train our hearts, not so that they can run from here, but so they can stay put when all sorts of temptations start pushing on them and trying to get us to stop trusting in God. In fact, one of our, our second directives is one of those temptations. And in verse 9, it says, wait without grumbling. Grumbling tries to get us to stop trusting in God. Um, so we're told, wait patiently and wait without grumbling. Look at verse 9 here, right? It doesn't just say, don't grumble. What, what do we have? What's the commandment in verse 9? Yeah, don't grumble against one another, brothers. So, so we can acknowledge the injustice of our situation, right? We can say this is evil. This is inherently evil. This is not right. Back in verse 4, we read the cries of the harvesters are reaching heaven. It's okay to cry out to God against evil. Um, it, it's implying there's some groaning or grumbling or distress or sighing. Um, it's all kind of packed into this word. When James says don't grumble, he's not really talking about grumbling about our situation. Maybe that's a different Sunday school lesson that we need to have. It's not coming from this text, though. He's saying don't grumble against your brothers and your sisters, the church, the Christians. Don't take out your frustration of this hard experience on those around you in the church. I mean, hardships have a way of affecting those closest to us, don't, don't they? I mean, we, we've all seen this. You have a hard day at work. You know, your boss just has these unreasonable demands on you, or your client's expectations are just completely obscene, and, you know, you have all of this pent-up frustration and anger. So you come home, and, and who's, it, who's it come out on? Do you, do you give your anger back to your boss and your clients? No, it goes to your wife, your kids, your dog. Those closest to us receive the grumbling from something that's not even related to them. That's not at all their fault. And by doing so, we, we actually drive away the community that we most need in this situation to deal with the stress and the hardship and the evil. The same picture here, right? Don't turn against your fellow Christians in the church because of the evil coming from outside. Rather, you, you need one another to help each other. So, yeah, cry out to God with your groaning and your sighing. Establish your heart and use this community around you because it is, it's almost impossible to suffer faithfully alone. So don't grumble and push away the people that you need to support you. We need a community to suffer in. Which actually goes with our, with our third point here, right? Um, suffer and wait patiently, without grumbling, and knowing you're not alone in this situation. I'm getting this from verses 10 and 11. James says, wait, knowing you're not alone. So one of the, um, the interesting refrains throughout Scripture when it comes to suffering when it comes to persecution, it's this teaching that you're not special. 
you know, regardless of what every kid's program you've ever watched says, you're, you're not special in this. We tend to think that we are, right? That one of Satan's strategies is to come and tell us, you know what? You're alone in your suffering. You're unique in this. Nobody in the entire world, in the entire span of history, has ever suffered like you are. God is faithful. God is love. God cares for his children, but not you. You're special in this. God has singled you out for unparalleled suffering, so why would you be faithful to him? But the truth is, we're not special. Countless other people have suffered in this way. And the Bible Bible's faithful to remind us of this. 1 Peter 5 tells us that, you know, the suffering we're experiencing is being experienced by brothers all over the world. Or, um, you could think Old Testament when Elijah is running from Jezebel and he says, you know, he, he, he's depressed saying, I'm the only one in Israel who is faithful to God. And, and God comes and says, no, there's 3,000 people here that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone in this. Or um, think of the Beatitudes. Jesus says to rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. Because they persecuted the prophets before you. You're joining a long line of persecuted, suffering Christians. You're in this family of suffering. So don't think that you're special here. Don't think that you're alone here. You can remain faithful just like they remained faithful. And so James picks up this teaching from his, his half-brother and his Lord Jesus Christ. And he points us to those sufferers of old who give us an example of steadfastness. Look at, look at verses um, where are we, 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So, so exhibit A here. Is, is the prophets, right? Those we consider blessed. I mean, we already saw back in James 1, 12, it was a few months ago, but, but James wrote, blessed is the man who stands firm, or who stands firm under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So now James is pointing to what he's already said, but with an example we already know. Everybody that looks at somebody who is faithful and steadfast in suffering, we consider that a blessed person. We consider the prophets blessed because of this. I mean, he doesn't say, you know, if we're thinking of a specific prophet or just this general picture of the prophetic role, they all suffered. I mean, goodness gracious, think of Jeremiah. Um, one commentator summarized Jeremiah's life like this. He writes, Jeremiah suffered enormously. His, old, his own family betrayed him. That's Jeremiah 12, 6. He was beaten and put in stocks by a temple official, 20, verse 2. Imprisoned by the king, 37, 18. Threatened with death, 38, 4 and thrown into a cistern, 38.6. Yet through all of this, Jeremiah remained faithful to his calling, speaking the words of God. And by doing so, he demonstrated the very patience that James has been commending. Jeremiah's experience, though acute, was not atypical. Such is the calling of a prophet of God, 
and such is an example for the people of God. So you want to think of who's been blessed? Example A, exhibit A is the prophets. Exhibit B here is Job. You've seen how he suffered with faith, which maybe is surprising because if you read the book of Job, he kind of complained for about 35 chapters about his suffering um, and his situation with his friends there. But in all of this, he never charged God with wrong. He stayed faithful to God. He's our example of steadfast endurance. And we consider Job blessed. But, I mean, more than just looking at Job in verse 11 here, we're, we're told to consider the Lord in his dealings with Job. Look at that end of verse 11, right? You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So, I mean, think about the Lord's dealing with Job. You know, you get those early chapters. Hey, Satan comes to, to God. Can I afflict him? Yeah, just don't touch him. Great. Takes his livestock, takes his livelihood, takes his servants, takes his house, takes all ten of his children. And Job is faithful. Satan comes back. Okay, you're right. He is faithful. But what if I take his health as well? God says, Go ahead, he's going he's gonna to remain faithful to me. We look at that and we think, that's not compassion. That's, that's, that, I don't know what I want to call that, but I don't want to call that God's compassion to Job. But James tells us otherwise. He says, James seems to say that Job suffered because God's purpose was to be merciful and compassionate to him. Now, I think we have to say the mercy and compassion to Job exists in the, in the last chapter, in chapter 42 of the book, where God gives back Job's health. He gives him more kids. He gives him more fortunes. And he gives him a good long life to 140 years, and everybody calls him blessed. Like, that for sure is a picture of God's mercy and compassion in restoring Job. Um, but we need to say more than that, too. Because if you read the book, like, why does God afflict Job in the first place? You never get the picture that, oh, God's going to afflict him because God wants to give material blessings, and this is the way that God will do it. The purpose that we see is to, to test Job, to prove the validity of Job's faith, right? So that Job, so that Satan, so that God himself, in a, in a way, would, would know that he holds fast to God, that his faith is real, no matter what the situation brings him. Which means then, follow me here, right, that God's compassion and mercy aren't just in the end of Job and his restoration, but in the entire story of Job from the beginning where God allows Satan to start afflicting him. Because God uses these evils to produce a greater, compassionate, merciful good. It's almost like we've come full circle back to the beginning of the book, right? James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, which is the characteristic of Job pointed here, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God's 
mercy and compassion are seen in giving Job trials so that he would grow to be steadfast, so that he might be perfect and complete, that he might be this complete man, so that, as Job 1.12 says, so that he might receive the crown of life. God's testing gave Job the fortitude to endure steadfastly in suffering, so that when he suffered, he didn't sin against God in it. I mean, God even speaks highly of him, saying that, that Job spoke rightly. That's a Job 42.8. In Job's trials, not just his restoration, but in Job's trials, we see God's mercy and compassion. And we consider Job blessed because he endured that with steadfastness. Which means, then, that our trials, too, are based out of the character of God, out of God's mercy and compassion. The, the persecution of James readers are based out of God's mercy and compassion. God's not somehow more sovereign over Job's story than he is over ours. The problem is we have a limited perspective. We think our goal in trials is to escape them, but God's goal is always much greater than that. He gives us trials so that we can experience God's mercy and compassion, that we might be blessed, that we might be tested, that we might endure with steadfastness and receive the crown of life. So we have, have the prophets, we have Job brought up to remind us of the blessing of being steadfast, to remind us you're not alone in this. God's not singling you out for unparalleled, you know, suffering because he's somehow against you in these situations. No, even in the difficulties, even in God's bitter providence, as one pastor calls it, God's unfailing purpose is compassion towards you. So wait with patience. Wait without grumbling. Wait knowing you're not alone in these things. And finally, we have in verse 12, wait with honesty. Right? Verse 12 reads, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So, so when James says, now above all, my brothers, right, to introduce this last point, what, what's he saying here? Which, like, that's not necessarily rhetorical because nobody really knows. Um, you read the Greek, and it's hard to tell if James is saying, now this is the most important part of this section, or maybe the most important part of this letter, or maybe it's more like a, now finally, now in conclusion, that's what most people think, it's not a level of importance, but it's a, and above all, in conclusion, we're wrapping this up, um, but does that mean we're wrapping up the letter, or does that mean we're wrapping up this point on, on waiting and stuff? Like, it's just, you know, a little bit unsure here, um, but I, I think the ESV is right when it puts it, you know, here with this, this section of, when you suffer, do so honestly. The, the, the call against swearing, against oaths, it's not 
you know, this broad sweeping prohibition of all sorts of oaths, right? You know, I sinned when I got married because I took a covenant oath there. Or when we closed on a house and signed 150 documents, like that was 150 different signatures of sin. Like that, that's not what we're getting. It's not talking about going to court and getting sworn in and taking an oath. Or, you know, if you swear into the military or the police force, that, that, that's another sin. That's not what we're getting at. Rather, James seems to be echoing Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, where he condemns using oaths as like a loophole to get out of keeping your word, right? Um, apparently, this was a common practice back then that we don't really have nowadays. Um, actually, I guess if you're like a second grader at recess, we do this all the time, right? You know, oh yeah, I'm like, I had my fingers crossed behind my back, therefore my oath doesn't count. Or I didn't say $100, I said 100 doll hairs. And, you know, we make these kind of oaths as a, as a loophole to get out of actually speaking the truth. Um, this, is, this, this is less like getting a bank form notarized. And it's more like when Ella asks me for the 95th time to go play in the snow with her, but the wind chill's negative seven and I'm already cold. I say maybe, right? Not because there's a chance that I want to actually go play in the snow and get hypothermia and die on my patio, but because I don't want to deal with the reaction to saying no. So I kind of skirt around the truth a little bit by saying maybe instead of just being honest with my words. Um, and we, I guess we do do this a little bit, but these formal oaths aren't, aren't a, a major thing in our culture. But, but put yourself in these persecuted Christian shoes. If your employer, if, you're, if your boss, if, the, if the, the master of the field is lying to you about paying you your wages to feed your family for that night, right? It's, it's a paycheck-to-paycheck, hand-to-mouth job. Wouldn't the temptation be to fight fire with fire? If he's not going to be completely honest with me, why do I need to be completely honest with him, right? If he's going to lie about my wages, it's okay if I'm not completely honest in return and I lie about the work I do, right? But, but Jesus's standard for his followers is, is a lot higher. We're not called to do whatever we can to avoid suffering. We're called to do whatever we can to avoid sins, sin like lying. And so we must be known as people of our word that are yes, means yes, that our no means no. That a simple yes or no should be just as affirm, uh, uh, authoritative as like a signed legal affidavit. That Christians should be people of honesty, of integrity, just like our Lord is. I mean, goodness gracious, hasn't this been the theme through the entire book of James? To use your words in a way that is righteous. And in our trials, in our suffering, in our waiting, the temptation is to use our words to manipulate the situation to get the results we want instead of being patient and trusting in the Lord. But, but James reminds us, that's not what faith looks like. Faith looks like honesty, integrity, not lying or finding loopholes, which again is always going to push us back to relying on the Lord instead of relying on ourselves. So we have these, these four directives, right? Wait with patience, wait without grumbling, wait knowing you're not alone, and wait with honesty. But why are we told to wait in the first place, right? 
Like, why are we told to wait upon the Lord instead of taking matters into our own hands? And the answer is, maybe surprisingly, because of the gospel, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news because it says that God will save humble sinners who call out upon the name of the Lord, that he has mercy and compassion and forgiveness, and he will give it to the humble who submit to him. But the gospel is also good news. We don't think about this often because those who commit themselves to evil will indeed be punished for it. That, that justice and judgment is coming. And when we live in a world, when they were living in a world, where, there, where, where justice is elusive to them, where those who are supposed to protect them are actually oppressing them and killing them, when all the powers and authorities of the world are stacked against you, and there's no justice, there's no right being done to you, when you're oppressed, the judgment of God upon the enemies of God actually feels like good news, that righteousness prevails, that truth prevails, that, that those who do evil will receive evil on their head, that's good news. I mean, the, the therefore in verse 7 that links us to everything we read in verses 1 through 6 is essential for this text. Given the persecution, this is the hope that you should have because your Lord is faithful, and he promises judgment upon evil. So he says, because of this faith that you have in the Lord, let your faith play out in real life, in actions, in works. Let your faith look like patience as you stand firm and receive the crown of life. Because we've seen this all throughout this passage, judgment's coming. Not only judgment, the judge, indeed, is coming for those who do not have faith. So have this real living faith. Cultivate it in these ways so that you might be found as one who humbly submits to the Son of God when he returns. As we read in, in chapter 4, right? For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, so pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make us humble in our suffering. Um, I mean, we're, we're not suffering in the way that these early Christians did. Um, but our, our trials are still real. They're still difficult. There's still, they're still temptations to fall away from trusting you. So I pray that you would make us humble, not to take action in our own hands, but to trust in you, the one who is sovereign and just and wise and loving in all these things. I pray that we would wait patiently for Christ's return, that we would look with eager expectation towards resurrection and towards righteous judgment. I pray that you would help us not to grumble and turn against our brothers and sisters. I pray that you would help us to realize the blessing that we have because of those who have suffered faithfully before us. And I pray that in our suffering that we would not be sinful, that we would not be um, untrue with our speech, but that our yes would be yes and our no would be no. And Lord, I pray that in all of this, you would help us to trust you and rely wholly upon you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, 
our Savior and the judge. Amen.